0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 220. Today's big Bible question, is there ever a time to compromise? And a bonus question, can a male give birth? Well, hello, friends. Happy Monday to you. Our passages today almost boil down to all Jeremiah all the time, but there's some other chapters, too. We're going to begin with Judges 17, go to Jeremiah thirty thirty one. Mark 16 and Acts 21. Now, there are so many things we could cover today on this episode. One of the best sermons I've ever heard, for instance, uh, is Paris Reedhead's Ten Shekels and a Shirt, which comes from Judges 17. We could have covered that in the stuff that Paris Reedhead talks about, but instead of that, I just want to point you to his sermon. All you got to do to find it is uh, come to our webpage, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and I've embedded a YouTube video of that sermon, 10 Shekels in a Shirt by Paris Reedhead. Of course, you can search for it on your own as well. But uh, if you want to just find it easy, come to episode 220 on BibleReadingPodcast.com and you will find it. And uh, man, you got to listen to that sermon. It's not short, but it's powerful. It's strong. It's convicting. Well, with Mark chapter 16, we could have talked about the resurrection. I always love doing that. Or we could have talked about the longer ending of Mark versus the shorter ending of Mark, but I tell you what, I'm going to hold off on that because we just, a couple of days ago, had a big discussion of textual criticism and textual issues, and I don't want to overburden you guys with that kind of thing if you're not into it. From the Jeremiah reading, we could talk about whether or not males can have babies, because that question is asked in that passage, and I believe the answer is no. We could also talk about the promise of the new covenant, which is one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible, in Jeremiah 31, 33, which says, Instead, uh, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God is saying that, uh, his people had time and time again abandoned him, but a day is coming when he is going to initiate a new covenant with his people, and he's going to write the Word of God into their heart. And that new covenant was initiated and inaugurated by Jesus, and his he is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, and the Word was God, Jesus was the Word. And now Jesus is in us, in our hearts, in fulfillment of that new covenant. Well, we could have done all those, but we're going to tackle a, I don't know, maybe a strange topic that I've never really taught much about, but is raised by a most interesting occurrence in our Acts 21 passage. Now, before we get to that, I would like to share with you an interesting experience from a reading a couple of days ago. Most nights, my family and I, we have uh, five kids, Uh, our oldest is 19, our youngest is eight, just about to turn nine this month. Well, our family, not every night, but most nights, we gather to read a chapter of the Bible before bedtime, and I just pick a chapter from what we're reading in the Bible reading plan. Now, lest you think my family is super spiritual, we're not. Sometimes we just have to drag people out of the woodwork to get them to come And we can be silly about it, but we try to get into the Word. And me reading the Word, I'm usually the one that reads it, that means I get to at least read one of the chapters twice in the same day. Sometimes several times if I'm reading it before uh, I actually record the show. And it's funny how you miss things on the first reading of a scripture. And the other day when we were reading through Acts 20, I missed this powerful nugget in uh, verse 24. Now, I'm going to start in verse 22. Paul says, Now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Man, that is powerful. Right now, so many people are living in fear, and I've tasted it too. This pandemic is a little scary. It makes you aware of your mortality. And what does Paul say? He says, I consider my life of no value. Just my purpose is to finish my race and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Man that's just awesome. Ponder that passage, especially if you're wrestling with the fear of death. You know what? God's got this. My goal and your goal is to finish the course and the ministry that we've received from the Lord Jesus. So whenever we go, our whole purpose is just to do what we're called to do, which is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now, the takeaway of me missing that is that sometimes we need to go over a passage, read it or hear it more than once. It's a lot like, uh well, it's a little like metal detecting, which is my new pandemic hobby. Got myself a metal detector and much to my wife's chagrin, I have been uh, digging up treasure in various places. And in metal detecting, if you over only go over a spot once or if you go over it too fast, sometimes you miss a great treasure. And if we go through the word too fast, or if we only go through it once, even if we're paying attention, sometimes we miss a great treasure like is there in Acts 20.24. 20, so, under our focus question. Is it ever okay to compromise? Now, I imagine most of you listening would say, absolutely not. And I'm going to give you a little bit more of a nuanced answer to that question. Is it okay to compromise on the core doctrines and clear teachings of the Bible? Absolutely not. It is beyond question not okay to compromise on those things. Is it okay to compromise on the sins and behaviors that the New Testament says will eternally separate Christians from God? And I'm talking about gossip sins, sexual sins, um, slandering sins, that sort of thing. Is it okay to compromise on those things when the whole culture is pointing a different direction? And the answer is no. Compromise in such a situation like that is not only personally dangerous, but you run the risk of leading others into dangerous places and suffering eternally for doing something like that. Is it okay to compromise when your wife wants to eat at Albert's house of asparagus and you'd prefer Steve's sizzling steaks? You bet it is okay to compromise in that situation, and you and I should. We must hold to the clearly revealed truths of Scripture with integrity, tenacity, and boldness. But there are other areas, like a big one we will see today in Acts 21, maybe more than one, where there's room to have differing convictions and not argue and fight about it. So let's read Acts 21 and see if you can see the one or two possible sources of conflict in the passage. Now, you might miss it because the potential conflict I want to focus the most on is handled with such grace that no conflict happens at all, though I suspect that one person compromised their opinions in order to avoid a potential conflict. So Acts chapter 21, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them with their wives and children accompanied us out of the city." After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more, except the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, "'You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are also who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses.' "'telling them not to circumcise their children "'or to live according to our customs. "'So what is to be done? "'They will certainly hear that you have come. "'Therefore, do what we tell you. "'We have four men who have made a vow. "'Take these men, purify yourself along with them, "'and pay for them to get their heads shaved. "'Then everyone will know that "'what they were told about you amounts to nothing.' But that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day Paul took the man, having purified himself along with him, and entered the temple announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, in this place. What's more, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in that crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got out, got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mass of people followed, yelling, Get rid of him! As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, "'Am I allowed to say something to you?' And he replied, "'You know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness?' Paul said, "'I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people.' After he had been given permission, Paul stood on the steps in motion with his hand to the people." When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. So, did you catch it? Or actually, rather, I should say, did you catch them? There's at least two situations in Acts 21 that could have become big conflicts that didn't. Well, first, Paul was persuaded by the Holy Spirit, as we read earlier in Acts 20, to go to Jerusalem. All of his friends tried to convince him not to go, and even people speaking through the Spirit tried to convince him not to go, and the prophet Agabus, who was known to be a very accurate and truthful prophet, warned Paul about the heavy consequences of going to Jerusalem, a prophecy that ended up being true. Paul, nevertheless, persisted in his plan to go to Jerusalem, and though his companions clearly disagreed, they dropped the issue, saying, the Lord's will be done. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, nearly causes a riot, well, actually, his silly opponents nearly caused a riot, and he got himself arrested. So, who was right? Was Paul correct that the Holy Spirit was compelling him to go to Jerusalem, or were Agabus and company correct that going to Jerusalem would lead to great trouble and tribulation? And, I guess the somewhat unexpected answer is the Bible never tells us who was right. Maybe both sides were correct, and that's sort of my guess. But notice how they handled it. They didn't divide over the issue, and they didn't press the issue into a great conflict. Perhaps Paul had learned a little bit from his sharp disagreement with Barnabas over John Mark earlier in the book of Acts. John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey for reasons never explained, but apparently Paul didn't appreciate his leaving. When it was time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas, the literal son of encouragement, that's what his name means, wanted to take nephew John Mark along again and give him a second chance, but Paul simply would not agree. They had such a sharp disagreement over that, they split up. The greatest ministry duo in history up until that point went their separate ways. Who was right in that dispute? Was Paul right to not take along a young companion who might not be trusted when the going gets tough? Or was Barnabas right to offer a second chance to somebody who was likely young and made an immature decision? The Bible never tells us. But we do know they separated over the issue. We see a second potential conflict avoided in Acts 21 when Paul and his team come to Jerusalem and meet James and the leaders of the church there. Paul shares about what God has done in the, among the Gentiles and James rejoices, but then makes a very odd request of Paul. This happens in uh, Acts 21, 20 through 25. To refresh your memory, I'll read it again. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are here who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. That's true. Paul was doing that. Verse 22, So what is to be done, says James? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols from blood and from what is strangled and from sexual immorality. Well, so should these new converts to Christianity that were Jews be zealous for the law as James describes them? And it's kind of a good question. I've said before that Gentiles, which it, those are people who are neither born in Israel or born to ethnic Jewish parents are not obligated to follow the law, which is the very clear decision reached by the first Jewish council earlier in Acts. They're only required to follow the four provisions we just read about uh, sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols, not eating blood, and from uh, what is strangled. A slightly different question, were converted Jews who had been raised under the Old Testament their whole lives, obligated to follow the law. Now that's a thornier question. Certainly salvation is not by works for anybody, whether Jew or Gentile. Salvation is by grace through faith. And Jewish Christians, Jewish people coming to Jesus should not count on circumcision to save them at all. Circumcision is a work. And Paul says, if you rely on a work, you're still under the curse. But Should Jewish Christians after salvation still keep the law? Now that's kind of debatable. And I suspect Paul would have answered that question with a no. And yet here James asks him to do something that essentially amounts to placating the Jewish believers. And Paul apparently does it without any complaint whatsoever. Did Paul compromise in a sinful way? Cabin alert. The host has turned on the speculation light. Please buckle your seatbelts and prepare for turbulence. Because I'm going to speculate here. Guess. I don't think Paul sinned at all, though he might have done something that compromised his opinion. Did you catch the nuance there? I speculate or suspect that Paul might have struggled with James's request, the Bible doesn't say, but he did it anyway and with no apparent complaint. Why? Why did Paul... Paul do what he was asked to, and the answer is he was asked to do it. And doing what he was asked to do ideally should have led to peace and unity. Now, I do note here that Paul's being in the temple led to a riot of sorts, and um, reasonable men may differ on my opinion here, but I think a careful reading of the text indicates that this riot was not caused by Paul fulfilling James's request, but by Paul simply being in the temple and being seen with a Gentile earlier. And the Jews obviously erroneously assumed that Paul had brought the Gentile into the temple. Now, I have opinions on a lot of things, and so do you. May our opinions never get in the way of unity in the body of Christ. We must never compromise the word of God. But there are areas where the perfectly God-pleasing thing to do isn't always clear from what the Bible says. I'll give you an example of one. A friend of mine uh, and I, uh, several years ago, probably uh, close to 20 years ago now, we were the camp worship leader and speaker uh, at a camp in Texas where youth groups would come from around the country during the summer and go from McAllen, Texas into Reynosa, Mexico and rebuild uh, and build homes for poor people in Mexico. It was great ministry, and we spent some time there in that summer my friend led worship and I was like the camp speaker or whatever. Um, and different youth groups would come in and we would lead worship and we would teach them uh, a devotional in the morning and a little bit deeper of a thing in the evening. And that was kind of our role. Well, there was a youth group that came in that week and uh, God moved powerfully among that youth group. Several of the kids during one of the meetings uh, confessed Christ, repented of their sins and they wanted to get baptized like a lot of them. And me and my worship leading friend, Sam, we thought we were seeing a mighty move of God and so did their youth pastor. So these kids who were away from their home church, um, I don't know, there's a group of 40 or 50 of them with uh, parents and the youth pastor there. And they wanted to be baptized at the camp in the pool by their youth pastor. And look, it was a clear move of God, and it was amazing, and we were all so excited about the possible baptism service, but the senior pastor of the church, back home wherever he was, denied permission to allow the youth pastor to baptize the kids at the camp, which me and my partner at the time sort of felt like that quenched sort of a mighty move of God. And it hit us and the youth minister very hard. We were all bummed out. So who was right? Were the young guys right? Or was the senior pastor right? And the proper biblical answer is, who knows? The Bible doesn't tell us what to do in that situation. Now, at the time, I believed adamantly that the most Holy Spirit-pleasing thing to do was to baptize those kids, but the senior pastor of that church the one who had responsibility and human authority over those kids believed different. And possibly their parents did too, who had even a higher level of authority over those kids. Now, that situation was nothing to come into conflict over, and we didn't. But I am afraid that I complained about that pretty strongly, especially to my ministry partner, maybe even to the youth pastor too, who was bummed out about it also. And now, looking back, I'm convicted that my response was absolutely wrong. Because the Bible doesn't clearly tell us that one of those positions is right. And if I had to guess right now, I would sort of think that the senior pastor's position was right. I can understand why he would want to have the baptism in front of the church and the family and the parents and all of that. They make That makes all the sense in the world to me right now. But it didn't then, and regardless, the Bible doesn't tell us how to handle that sort of thing. Well, the this article that I wrote in the podcast is getting pretty long, so let me close with some important scripture and an exhortation when we face situations like this where the right thing to do is not clearly spelled out in the Bible. I want to give you an exhortation to be very careful to not divide or argue or grumble or complain Or accuse other believers over your personal opinions or your personal convictions. Now, hear me. I'm not talking about clear commands in the word of God. I am talking about doubtful or disputable matters that we're going to read about in just a second in Romans 14. For instance, should Christians dance? Should Christians sing modern worship songs? Should Christians sing worship songs out of X movement or X church? Should Christians drink a cup of wine in the privacy of their home once or twice a week? Should Christians be on social media, etc., etc., etc.? Don't divide over those issues because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what to do. It's okay to have convictions over them. But remember, your convictions are personal unless they are 100% clearly founded on and backed up by the Bible. And the questions I just talked about don't have 100%. Backing one way or the other in the Bible. So 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Romans 14.19 says, Except the one whose faith is weak. I'm sorry, this is Romans through 4 and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. That was Romans fourteen one through four. Romans fourteen nineteen says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So brothers and sisters, stand firm in the word of truth, but hold your personal convictions and opinions loosely and be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, and I'm going to read it again. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Judges chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you, And that I heard you place a curse on, here's the silver, I took it. Then his mother said, My son, may you be blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image and a silver idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a silver idol and it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest. In those those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who was staying within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from? Micah asked him. He answered him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, Stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, because a Levite has become my priest. Hmm. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write on a scroll all the words that I have spoken to you. For look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration When I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, I will restore them to the land that I gave their ancestors and they will possess it. These are the words the Lord spoke to Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. We have heard a cry of terror, of dread. There is no peace. Ask and see whether a male can give birth. Hmm? Why then do I see every man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor and every face turned pale? How awful that day will be. There will be no other like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, I will break his yoke from your neck and tear off your chains, and strangers will never again enslave him. They will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. As for you, my servant Jacob, do not be afraid. This is the Lord's declaration, and do not be discouraged, Israel, For without fail, I will save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return and have calm and quiet with no one to frighten him, for I will be with you. This is the Lord's declaration to save you. I will bring destruction on all the nations where I have scattered you. However, I will not bring destruction on you. I will discipline you justly, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For this is what the Lord says. Your injury is incurable, your wound most severe. You have no defender for your case. There is no remedy for your sores and no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They no longer look for you, for I have struck you as an enemy would with the discipline of someone cruel because of your enormous guilt and your innumerable sins. Why do you cry out about your injury? Your pain has no cure. I have done these things to you because of your enormous guilt and your innumerable sins." Nevertheless, all who devoured you will be devoured, and all of your adversaries, all of them, will go off into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered, and all who raid you will be raided. But I will bring you health and will heal you of your wounds. This is the Lord's declaration. For they call you outcast, Zion, whom no one cares about. This is what the Lord says. I will certainly restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and show compassion on his dwellings. Every city will be rebuilt on its mound. Every citadel will stand on its proper site. Thanksgiving will come out of them, a sound of rejoicing. I will multiply them and they will not decrease. I will honor them and they will not be insignificant. His children will be as in past days. His congregation will be established in my presence. I will punish all his oppressors. Jacob's leader will be one of them. His ruler will issue from him. I will invite him to me and he will approach me. For who would otherwise risk his life to approach me? This is the Lord's declaration. You will be my people and I will be your God. Look, a storm from the Lord. Wrath has gone out, a churning storm. It will whirl about the heads of the wicked. The Lord's burning anger will not turn back until he has completely fulfilled the purposes of his heart. It is in time to come. You will understand it. Jeremiah 31 verse 1, at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says, the people who survived the sword found favor in the wilderness. When Israel went to find rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. Again, I will build you so that you will be rebuilt, virgin Israel. You will take up your tambourines again and go out in joyful dancing. You will plant vineyards again on the mountains of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy the fruit, for there will be a day when watchmen will call out in the hill country of Ephraim, Come, let's go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For this is what the Lord says, Sing with joy for Jacob, shout for the foremost of the nations, proclaim, praise, and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Watch. I am going to bring them from the northern land. land. I will gather them from remote regions of the earth. The blind and the lame will be with them. Along with those who are pregnant and those about to give birth, they will return here as a great assembly. They will come weeping, but I will bring them back with consolation. I will lead them to wadis filled with water by a smooth way where they will not stumble. For I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn." Nations, hear the word of the Lord and tell it among the far off coasts and islands. Say, the one who scattered Israel will gather him. He will watch over him as a shepherd guards his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the power of one stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will be radiant with joy because of the Lord's goodness, because of the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil, and because of the young of the flocks and herds. Their life will be like an irrigated garden and they will no longer grow weak from hunger. Then the young women will rejoice with dancing while young and old men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation and bring happiness out of grief. I will refresh the priests with an abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness. This is the Lord's declaration. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Rama, a lament with bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim moaning. You disciplined me and I have been disciplined like an untrained calf. Take me back so that I can return for you, Lord, are my God. After my return, I felt regret. After I was instructed, I struck my thigh in grief. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Isn't Ephraim a precious son to me, a delightful child? Whenever I speak against him, I certainly still think about him. Therefore, my inner being yearns for him. I will truly have compassion on him. This is the Lord's declaration. Set up road markers for yourself. Establish signposts. Keep the highway in mind the way you have traveled. Return, virgin Israel. Return to these cities of yours. How long will you turn here and there, faithless daughter? For the Lord creates something new in the land. A female will shelter a man. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says When I restore their fortunes, they will once again speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities. May the Lord bless you, righteous settlement, holy mountain. Judah and all its cities will live in it together, also farmers and those who move with the flocks. For I satisfy the thirsty person and feed all those who are weak. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been most pleasant to me. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah... With the seed of people and the seed of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and to tear them down, to demolish and to destroy and to cause disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant them. This is the Lord's declaration. In those days it will never again be said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Rather, each will die for his own iniquity. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Look! The days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is what the Lord says. The one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar, the Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, this is the Lord's declaration. Only then will Israel's descendants cease to be a nation before me forever." This is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below explored will I reject all of Israel's descendants because of all they have done. This is the Lord's declaration. Look, the days are coming, the Lord's declaration, when the city from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate will be rebuilt for the Lord. A measuring line will once again stretch out straight to the hill of Gareb and then turn toward Goa. The whole valley, the corpses, the ashes, and all the fields as far as the Kidron Valley to the corner of the horse gate to the east will be holy to the Lord. It will never be uprooted or demolished again. Mark chapter 16 verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and peter he is going ahead of you to galilee. You will see him just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with Mark sixteen verse eight. Verse nine. Earlier on the first day of the week after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him, as they were mourning and weeping, yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. After this he appeared in a different form, two of them walking on their way into the country, and they went and reported it to the rest who did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. So the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying signs. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Good day and Godspeed.